Welcome to the All Out Coach Show. My name is Tim Michalashvili. I'm your host, CEO, and co-founder of Anadev Pharma, an analytics and organizational change consulting agency that helps life science companies improve their performance and engagement. As I look back at the All Out Coach podcast, now it's in the third season, I think of it as a catalog of ideas first and then leaders who challenge the normal, conventional modes of communication who redefine how performance is measured, and also who create learning and development communities and opportunities for others. Today, I have a special guest, Peter High, who's the president at MetaStrategy, a premier advisory firm that helps many executives, chief information officers, chief technology officers, integrate their data culture, data transformation, into their enterprises and their customers as well. MetaStrategy offers business, international growth, and merger and acquisition strategy related services. Peter High has been a columnist at Forbes for over 10 years. He is the host of the earliest and longest running technology podcast called Technovation, where he's interviewed many of the top tier leaders from across the organizations that all of you know. He's interviewed the Mexican president as well. He's a keynote speaker who talks to large global audiences, best-selling author of three books. His latest book is called Getting to Nimble, How to Transform Your Company into a Digital Leader. And today I'm excited to have Peter speak to us and help us make sense of what digital transformation really is, to have this discussion and to make it relevant to all of us, regardless of our industry and our field. So Peter, what a pleasure it is to have you on my podcast. First time I learned about you was at a LinkedIn learning course that I took about a year ago, where you shared a lot of those specific examples, which brought to life uh, data science, data mature companies and data transformation. Uh, and that really inspired me to share it, to review it and summarize it for my audience as well here on All Out Coach uh, across social media. So I'm really glad to discuss a digital transformation and its relevance and deconstruct its different elements as well. Thank you for being here today. Uh, it's my pleasure, Tim. Thank you for having me. Yes. As we speak about the organizational transformation, but I thought we'd start with your personal transformation throughout <laughs> your career. Share with us uh, what your personal transformation and professional transformation uh, has been like over the years. Yeah, so I mean, I I, um, I think probably the the key moment for me was starting a business. So a bit more than twenty one years ago, I founded MetaStrategy. You were kind enough to mention them in the my, my company in the introduction, and uh, you know the entrepreneur's journey was really in many ways the the clarion call for me and the difference maker in my professional career. Uh, I was 27 at the time and in many ways an ideal age to start a company. I, I was not yet married, nor uh, did I have kids. I've uh, done all the above uh, uh, since then. Uh, so I was relatively unencumbered and in a position in life to be able to take a risk. Uh, and with just enough experience to have some confidence, uh, um, I had a reasonable network for somebody at that age, certainly nothing like today. 
um, and you know, a little bit of runway to work with. I wasn't, uh, I was not um, independently wealthy, but I'd socked enough away to be able to have some runway to uh, to coast down uh, to, to try to make a go of it as 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 a business leader uh, under my own banner. And I would say that's been the the biggest difference maker for me as I think about my own personal transformation. So much as as uh, come from the fact that I've had the the liberty to shape a company, uh, the the blessing to have a phenomenal colleagues. Some of my most senior team members have been with me for a decade and a half or more, uh, and an opportunity to explore ideas uh, and to, to bring those to bear in a variety of different ways, whether it's like you and your, your great podcast, uh, delivering it through podcast form or in the written form in books or in my Forbes column, uh, certainly in the advising of a number of technology executives as well. And then I had the good fortune, frankly, 21 years ago to uh, to hitch my wagon to one of the, the fastest growing parts of the economy, which is enterprise technology. And so that that that's a, a good dose of luck, quite frankly. Uh, it happened to be where my experience was, but thank goodness that was also what I chose in terms of you know where to focus my attention. And the prominence of technology and digital leaders since then has grown remarkably. And and so we've had the good fortune of growing with that. And and I like to think having some influence on that growth at the same time. Yeah, you know, in my industry, which is very conservative and highly regulated, and in, you know, in pharma and medical in the medical division. Uh, which I'm familiar with, uh, we are realizing the need to integrate uh, that data culture and data transformation into our organizations um, because the, our ecosystem is becoming so competitive. In an organizational transformation, the level of risk and reward are probably magnified exponentially. And innovation takes courage and risk, as well as sharing possibly sensitive information publicly, uh, including with competitors, I think. Uh, so you speak to many chief information officers and executives um, and in IT departments. How does a chief information or data officer enable a company in a highly regulated industry, such as finance, for example, or pharmaceuticals, to stay competitive and relevant despite its restrictions? Yeah, it's a great question. I would say in many cases, it's the technology and digital leaders who under them have cybersecurity, for example, which is one of the you know, important, I always say, unfortunately growing in prominence areas of organizations as a result of the sensitivity of what you're describing and the need, of course, to uh, first and foremost do right by uh, the data and ultimately the the, the, the customers uh, uh, of organizations like a pharmaceutical company uh, is producing their, their pharmaceuticals for. Uh, so, Ensuring that data and and all of the you know most sacred uh, aspects of what the business holds dear are in fact locked down is a key element of what the IT leadership team can can do, and if they do that well, that then provides more room for experimentation and for innovation. Look, innovation is does require risk taking. Um, you know, to use a baseball analogy, you're not going to if you are batting a thousand, if you're getting hit a hit every time. You are not innovating. And so it also means hopefully inculcating an organization that may have a, a general conservatism for the various reasons, uh, important reasons that you note, uh, inculcating that culture a little bit with some risk, uh, um, a, a risk tolerance that allows for pursuing ideas that do not have definitive answers on the other end. And I mean, in some ways, actually, pharmaceutical organizations are, are great uh, bastions for this, given the amount of time it takes and the number of of tests and ideas and need to be put forth in order for a blockbuster drug to be introduced. So in many ways, it's IT reflecting the very nature of the business in some ways. And 
boy, I mean, are, are, is there an industry like the one that you play in that has more of a uh, necessity to, you know, stand on the shoulders of and leverage data and information and experimentation that has happened in the past, such that the wheel is not reinvented time and time again. And again, uh, that that comes back down to you know things like knowledge management, of course, and and uh, an ability to draw out information in the most inf- you know in the easiest way to understand this new vein of experimentation I'm going on. Um, how much has already been settled that I can leverage? How much has already been research has been done or work has been uh, undertaken that I can build upon as opposed to going back to ground zero each time? I think the technology and digital leaders have a great role to play in that. So on the one hand, it's it's one of the complications in any industry of this role, frankly, Tim, is that um, you have to have on the one hand, a risk mitigation aspect to what you're doing in the form of, for example, cybersecurity, while also allowing for a risk tolerance, a risk taking, which is the, 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 is the very essence of innovation. And so the best CIOs understand that balance uh, implicitly and hopefully get that right for the long term such the organization will succeed. The CIOs also bring a particular global perspective that's relevant across different ecosystems. And I think you discussed that, the the importance of an ecosystem uh, in your book, Getting to Nimble. So how does the ecosystem of a business impact its competitive power? Uh, that's a great question. So, I mean, I, for so long, we've thought about... Uh, uh, we've thought about the competitive landscape being a uh, Coke versus Pepsi or Ford versus General Motors or, you know, American Airlines versus Delta, sort of major players who are, uh, uh, who have, do very similar things who are pitted against each other. When in reality, uh, increasingly given the complexity and the global nature, as you point out to, to business, it requires an ecosystem. It's, it, that competition therefore is ecosystem to ecosystem rather than company to company. Who are you harnessing and bringing to the party, so to say, uh, in order to accomplish all that you uh, you need to do? This is in the form of, I mean, just to get, use a few examples of many, many we could come up with together. This is in the form of joint ventures or uh, managed service providers that we use. Uh, it, it could be the, the uh, Leveraging uh, for scaled organizations, leveraging partnerships, leveraging partnerships with venture-backed companies, and in fact, the venture capital community itself to understand where developments uh, from an enterprise technology perspective might impact my company uh, differently from others in my industry. Uh, is, so long as I'm I'm riding those trends appropriately. Again, just to name a few of many. So it, it requires you know thinking differently about how you are harnessing those resources in order to to accomplish all that you do. Look, I mean, the, the other thing I, I talked about the balance before uh, between risk-taking and risk mitigation a moment ago. Likewise, I think it's important to understand what are the things that we need to, uh, to, to undertake within our four walls with employees. Uh, and oftentimes, again, I'll generalize here to make the point, but uh, those things that are most strategic to the organization are likely to be the ones that are best suited to being developed by, you know, by, by uh, employees of the organization holding that information uh, clo- closely and uh, being the drivers of, uh, of that change. I'm not saying that there's never an outside force or an ecosystem player that would participate, especially perhaps in the downstream creation of, what, of the ideas that are pursued, but also kind of understanding the balance between, okay, what are we going to do within our, our company and ha- where do we harness the power of others to help us deliver all that as well? So um, you know, again, there's a balance, as I say, but it's a critically important element to understand in the way that modern business is conducted. Yeah. You mentioned the uh, resources, and I recently learned that you and I share 
as someone we both admire, Gary Hamill, management guru, global business professor, of course, who says that groundbreaking ideas happen during times of stretch, not slack, uh, in the during that gap between aspiration and resources. And so I wanted to ask you a relevant question today, right? During times of uncertainty, crisis, inflation, mm. how can modern inter enterprises continue to innovate despite the lack of resources during such difficult times or yeah. during expansion and growth as well? Maybe, you know, different set settings and scenarios. You know, it's interesting, Tim, there's a lot of research that shows that some of the best companies, many of the best companies are born during downturns. Mine was, for example, uh, and in 01, uh, the, uh, after the first internet bubble burst and 9-11 happened, of course, in 01 as well. We had all sorts of challenges in those early days. And quite frankly, it's the constraint of that. Um, it's the challenge of that, the crucible of no easy revenue. Uh, you know, the, 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 that, that ideas are by no means going to be preordained for success that requires the best thinking to come about in order to succeed. And so I, I think oftentimes, uh, you know, those challenges uh, and those wins earned during the most difficult times are in many ways the, that, that is what determines long-term success. Are you able to see your way through those challenging times? You know, a second point that I would make is, I think constraint is your friend. Uh, I'll tell you a quick story. I took a group of um, multi-billion dollar company tech execs, chief, chief information officers to visit a startup in California. This is pre-pandemic. So this would have been, I think it was January of 2019, as I recall. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, was a, it was an augmented reality company. And we were we met with the executive team. We heard about all the, the use cases of it. We, we tried on their headsets and got to, to live real life uh, some of the uh, use of the technology and seeing the power of it. They were describing their list of customers and it was uh, uh, most of them massive organizations uh, that they served. And it was interesting as we got to the conclusion of our, our conversation, one of the executives I had invited to join us said, how many members do you, of your team are there? And it was less than 20. And uh, this executive that asked the question said, you know what, I'd like to come back here with my leadership team and show them what can be done with 20 people? Because I, I rarely have a, uh, a, a project request where members of my team aren't saying, we need 50 extra people in order to deliver what, what, what you're suggesting is needed. And I, I think the lesson, as I say, is constraint is in some ways your friend because constraint forces prioritization. And in many ways is a uh, force for, it's a mechanism to determine what really are the most important things for us to pursue now. I think sometimes when we grow our teams to massive uh, scale, the, the, the work fits that scale as opposed to the reverse. And sometimes that, that leads to flabbiness, uh, even strategic flabbiness, to be perfectly candid. And so I think it's oftentimes, uh, as I say, the crucible of difficult times that, be, that provide the focus for the best companies to hone their craft all the better. So actually, in some ways, the bigger challenge is the last part that you added to the question of during times of growth and where it doesn't feel like anything's broken. Right. I think it's sometimes it's during those periods where companies really lose their way because they have a false sense of, of security that, that feels like it's going to last for the foreseeable future. And it's those other companies that have gone through ch challenges recently that perhaps are built to steal market share from them as a result of it. And I, I remember some examples also from the LinkedIn learning course where you uh, spoke about ING and its uh, interesting structure. Uh, and there's other examples. So there's plenty of examples probably in, in business management. 
uh, W.L. Gore and Associates, who limits the numbers of business units, the number of people in a particular business unit, Google as well, right? And so Amazon's two pizza teams, you know, it's another another version of that, right? Uh, that that if you if you can't feed the team with two pizzas, if, if two pizzas okay. aren't sufficient, to, to, then you've got too many people in the team. <laughs> so, uh, you know, a general observation also that many of us dilettantes, amateurs who are not experienced in IT, information technology, uh, make is that in the tech industry in particular, it's really the idea or the product that are truly the protagonist rather than its author or the expert responsible uh, as uh, relatively speaking compared to other industries. And so as a result, there is uh, supposedly a faster rate of innovation in tech than in other industries, possibly more teamwork as well to rally around that you know, MVP, uh, right? Or less, less politics involved in decision-making uh, are these assumptions, are these general pictures, are, are they realistic in terms of teamwork and agility? Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's something to that, certainly. The the um, the stereotype is there for a reason. And I think, you know, on the one hand, so much of venture capital, for example, is being, being put towards software companies and technology product organizations, not exclusively, of course, but because so much of it is put there, uh, it... it um, leads to an impetus for the need for hyperscaling, right? If, if, uh, if Sequoia Capital is going to give, uh, you know, $50 million uh, to, to some startup, well, they better be using that. Sequoia ex expects a, a return on that investment and hopefully a significant one. And so that management team needs to be, you know, it has all the focus necessary uh, in order to ensure that uh, they're on a path to very rapid hyper hyperscaling. And uh, of course, most will still fail. It's the nature of VC as well, that it's a batting average more akin to, you know, again, back to the baseball analogy, where if yeah. you fail only 70% of the time, you'll make the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Uh, but but uh, so I, I think that said, uh, the amount of talent and the amount of money that's being put into the tech space just does in some ways lend itself to ensuring that those companies have very modern practices, modern skill sets, modern uh, processes. Part of it is also, frankly, that so much of enterprise technology, if you think about this, the, the, the vast array of companies, so many of them are built relatively recently, you know, certainly in the digital age. Uh, so it's the very nature of, that, of, the, of the age, in fact. And so they, they don't have quite as much legacy. It's, it's a fallacy to say they don't have any, of course, because legacy is built up very, very quickly indeed. But, you know, there are I have a number of uh, clients I serve, even great ones, who are using, in some cases, have data flowing through technologies that were uh, implemented before the executives who run that part of the organization were born. And that is a source of risk, needless to say, and, and it's an impossibility for a, a modern company. No, no company would be created today and say, let's go think about 1960s technology that we could begin to implement right now. So I think you know there, there's the advantage of recency, there's the advantage of the vast amount of talent that's pouring into technology is a very, you know, uh, crucial industry where a lot of ambition uh, with a lot of ambition, generally speaking. So um, I, I think there's a lot that rings true in terms of that stereotype. We spend a lot of our time virtually. And, you know, I, I remember during the pandemic when a lot of the conferences in healthcare, for example, became either hybrid or virtual, there was a great variability in terms of creating communities and creating engagement and education. Whereas the tech, in the tech industry, there's a lot of data that showed that they outperformed other industries in, in that regard, right? Even in a 
virtual communication and virtual meeting space as well. So I, th I think, you know, I've, I've been following technology space much more in the last few years. And I'm, um, in fact, uh, starting a first unprecedented cross-company medical affairs innovation Olympics event uh, kicking off this fall. So it's a huge experiment and a, a different, very daring kind of format of ideation that uh, that we'll be talking about much more in, in my industry. So uh, we're, we definitely look at technology uh, and, and information technology as as a role model. I think, you know, and there's many qualities uh, to emulate as well. Now, are there particular gaps uh, that you see and how can the tech industry continue to be a role model for others, for us? Yeah, well, sure. Uh, I, I think that there is, um, and again, it, it, it's a, it, when you talk about the tech industry generally, needless to say, there's so many different uh, uh, flavors of that, that that we could, we could discuss uh, in terms of talking about gaps. But, you know, it, it is it's still the case that uh, the technology industry is uh, dominated by males, by men. Uh, the founders are still, you know, remarkably uh, a remarkable percentage are, are men, uh, just as a, as, a, as a remarkable percentage of those funding the companies in venture capital are also men. And so, uh, you know, nothing wrong with men, but having a greater, greater degree of diversity, of course, is is, is a is, I think, a, a worthy pursuit to ensure that there's you know, broader representation of society, generally speaking, in terms of the ideas that are being pursued as a, as the one of the higher higher uh, aspects of value that's de derived from that greater level of diversity, um, and and frankly, even other uh, flavors uh, and important important aspects of diversity have a lot of underrepresentation, whether that is you know racial racial diversity or or a sexual orientation or a variety of others that you and I might might, might call out. Um, again, underrepresentation, I think, in the tech field, uh, generally speaking, some strides being made. Don't get me wrong, but I think that's one of the areas in, in which uh, um, you know the, the the tech industry might emulate others that have made more progress there. Uh, as as one point, you know. Secondly, I think there's also um, one wonders. At least I do sometimes. The uh, venture capital community is is a remarkable catalyst for innovation. Um, but as I mentioned before, the the pressure of receiving capital uh, means that you need to have some kind of exit on the back end in order to provide the uh, the return that your funder seeks. So yeah. you need to go public at some point or get acquired at some point. There, there's there there are some VCs that are very patient that that you know you can go a decade or more in some cases privately before that takes place. But somehow, somewhere, they want to get that return, and uh, and so uh, you know, I think that sometimes not, uh, that that path is not necessarily the right one for all organizations, and that push to have that financial event sometimes can be deleterious as well. I mean, many there are many companies across all industries, of course, that are public who've gone through their, their own version of that, and I'm not I don't mean to suggest that that either being acquired or getting going public are bad outcomes, but as I say, just because. The VC, you know, the, but once you are venture backed, you are sort of getting yourself on the rails that send you down the railroad towards one of those outcomes. Um, you know, it, it isn't necessarily always the the greatest thing. But um, so anyway, a couple of ideas that come to mind uh, with the question you call out. Yeah. So we spoke a little bit about competition, how to stay competitive, relevant, innovative, right? The importance of the ecosystem. The way I think of innovation is that the first step to innovation is really creating a platform 
uh, right? You don't necessarily have to innovate per se, but if you create a platform, an accelerator, an incubator, right? That's already an important step. In the same way as, uh, you know, creating other leaders, right? Or mentors, a mentorship program, right? And, and from my experience. So I want to shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit about the, uh, the impact of, you know, IT departments and their roles in culture and people management as well. Uh, you know, what are some resources or frames of reference that you can share for IT within IT to manage people, their emotions and their lives as well, rather than just their data, right? And their work and technology alone in this environment in which employees are now changing the world of work and are struggling to continue to be engaged. Yeah. And I, I would say it's an interesting question, certainly, Tim. And I would say in many cases, it's the tech team that is uh, most strained during these times. Uh, on the one hand, it tends to be one of those organizations that even in a manufacturing uh, 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 organization, for instance, where a, a great preponderance of employees never could really go virtual because somebody needs to be there to, to mine the manufacturing plant to produce whatever it is that is being produced. Technology resources, uh, even in companies like that, have had greater flexibility in terms of where they do work. And as the, there's a push now to go hybrid, uh, for many companies, there there is a vast number of organizations that have just a lot of employees now that have never, you know, or rarely, let's say, have been in the same room with each other. And so the cultural element you call out, I think, is, if anything, going to become all the more challenged because of the nature of work these days. You referenced earlier the fact that now we're we're doing so much more virtually than we ever did before. And so I think, you know, in, in, in March of 2020, when, when those of us who could go virtual did, and we did so for our, our safety, our families, and our colleagues' safety, it wasn't really a question if you had that option, uh, we were lulled into, I think, a false set of, of security in as much as things actually worked pretty well on the other end of that. We, you know, we fired up Zoom, we had meetings, we, we uh, you know, made sure that the, the, the VPN was working appropriately and the, the appropriate security software was implemented on computers and, and, and we sort of continued where we once were. But the false sense of security actually came from the fact that almost by definition, everyone who went virtual had been in offices together before. There was that built-in trust and immersion in the culture. There was a you know, shared language that, that, that those who went virtual had. Fast forward, and this is going to increasingly be the case, greater and greater percentages, again, by definition, of people that are on the team, again, will never have operated in that form. And oftentimes we're seeing in organizations, the first people to come in, excuse me, the last people to come in are the first to leave because they don't feel like they're part of something bigger than just themselves. And so that really, I think, becomes the challenge, I mean, not just for IT departments, of course, it's for the company, generally speaking. But I think uh, it's acute within IT organizations because of uh, the, the nature of the work and so much of it can be done virtually. So it does mean being very intentional in terms of, you know, how do you go about uh, collaborating and what are frankly even the, the, the reasons to, for people to come together uh, in order to, to uh, occupy the same space, like when they collaborate or when they create or when they career plan, where they, where, when they celebrate, to name a few Cs that might be the activities that would bring folks together. I think these are the kinds of defining what kind of work as opposed to your opinion versus mine. If we can agree, okay, today is a day that we're going to be creating, we're going to be brainstorming uh, for 10 hours. Well, that feels to me, or I should, tomorrow I should say, is going to be that. That feels to me that you and I ought to be together for that 10-hour session uh, in person around a whiteboard where we can see each other and you know, kind of get, get a, a feeling for, for the two of us and the others who will be joining our team uh, for, that, for that session. 
Um, if we can agree on the kind of work that is best done in that way, then I think that then all the better in helping us make sure that we have those immersive experiences that become the ties that bind uh, for an organization as well. Okay. Uh, are there any specific companies or teams that you're advising that have excelled in, in this, in this tra transformation? Those who have been very active in their communications, as well as in their change management programs, I would say those are two key elements that determine success. Okay. Re regular and clear and open dialogue as to what the current hypotheses are that we are, we are leveraging to determine the, the, the state of work as we see it for the foreseeable future, but also recognizing you need good, strong change management programs in place because a lot of change has already, we've already been through a lot of change and there will be a lot more to come. Mm -hmm. um, I recently wrote an article for my Forbes column where I suggested to, to, to piggyback on the points just made that um, what we experienced in uh, March of 2020 pales in comparison to the challenge of what we have ahead. And a lot of that is because, you know, pre-pandemic, 95, 98% of work was done in an office. It was a given, right? If we, if I, if I joined your company, I would, I, I'm changing addresses for my business. I may change cities, in fact, as a result of that change. And I don't really have a lot of liberty as a new employee to push back on that. Now, today, everyone has liberty to some extent, even if for a company that says you need to be five days in the, in the office, well, then people will vote with their feet and may they may go elsewhere because not all companies, in fact, uh, few companies are being as strict as that. And so the fact that all flavors are there, there are some people who can't wait to return to an office because they live in an efficiency apartment with a spouse and a dog and a, and a child, let's say, and they need some peace and quiet to others who have a special wing where no one bothers them, where they do work and they don't ever want to come into an office again and every flavor in between. And so I think it's those people who recognize and have very open dialogue with their employees, but also prepare them for the fact that the hypotheses that the current state are based upon, some are going to be incorrect. And so what we say is the sort of state of work today isn't necessarily where we will be in 18 or 24 or 36 months. We need to continue to evaluate uh, you know, anecdotal evidence from our, from our people, but also the data that pr proves how well we are working together and course correct along the way. So that preparation, that communication is, I think, essential as well. And those companies that, that get that right tend to be the ones who um, are building trust, even in a, in a largely virtual environment with their employees. Yeah, and the need for to communicate and just create that sense of belonging is also, uh, I think, underlined by a lot of the recent data that I've seen, Peter, where there's a 70% difference between the executive's level of engagement and the rank and file uh, employees. And I think this, uh, you know, the, the talk of uh, the great resignation is what I call uh, the great revelation, I think, uh, that it's not just that we are finding ourselves more efficient and working virtually, but maybe perhaps it's that we don't feel like we belong or we're involved in those decisions, right, firsthand. And that's why it's really the executives who are calling and asking for uh, their employees to go back to the office. But, but those who work on the front lines, two-thirds or three-fourths of them are, are choosing to work virtual or have that option. So, you know, if, if you consider your organization a family, uh, then once the restrictions are lifted, then wouldn't you naturally try to go back and kind of hug your family and be with them in the office space? I think so. It's, it's some of the data is, I think, is very telling. Again, uh, highlights the need for better, more direct, transparent communication, I think, that you brought up that kind of. Uh, yeah, yeah. The fair points yeah. all.